pray. <clears throat> our Father and our God, we ask that you would turn our hearts and our attention to you, that we would hear and understand the message that you have prepared for us today through our pastor. We ask that you be with him, that he would have clarity of mind and heart as he speaks the truth of your gospel. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Will you turn with me, please, in your copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 2. And yes, we are interrupting briefly our series in the book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark, and for a couple of reasons. We don't, uh, GFBC Conroe, we, we, I don't normally preach according to a calendar. Uh, we, we preach consecutively through books of the Bible, but there are occasions, and I think this is a, a good one, when we, we, we are surrounded, and many of us will leave today, perhaps, or tomorrow, and go and be with family. Our, our culture does still, thankfully, at least give a nod to the, the, the resurrection, or to the, to the incarnation, the birth of the Christ child. E- even if I'm not convinced that this is, you know, Christmas as we know it is, is not a church holiday. There's no command in the scriptures for us to observe Christmas, but it's all around us, isn't it? And so the purpose of today's sermon is somewhat apologetic. It's somewhat apologetic. As, as we think about, and we are having dinner and lunch and time with family and friends and office parties and all these kinds of things. And, and for once a year, the name of Christ is out there. It's in front of us. And how as God's people do we respond? Are we able to think and even to speak rightly about the Christ child? I'm going to read the first 22 verses of Luke's gospel in chapter 2, here in just a moment, the title of today's sermon is, What Child Is This? And and I I mentioned in the call to worship that we have three different groups portrayed here, or three different parties. One is the shepherds. And as the angel of the Lord appears to the shepherds, we're told that after they go to Bethlehem and visit the Christ child, they go away marveling in their hearts about what they have seen and heard. Luke tells us that all who saw and heard these events on that night marveled about what they had seen and heard. We're told that Mary, the mother of the Lord, marveled in her heart and pondered in her heart these things. Brothers and sisters, when when you ponder in your heart the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity, do you ponder rightly? Do you ponder accurately? Do you ponder in these, first of all, do you ponder these things in your heart? We ought to. But secondly, do we think accurately, biblically? Do we think in a way that's faithful to the scriptures? Let's read together in Luke's gospel, chapter 2. And I'm going to consider the text under three broad headings. This will not be a, a, a a straightforward exposition of the text, we're going to be looking at this somewhat thematically, looking at the incarnation theologically from what we find here in Luke chapter 2. And I'm going to consider this under three headings, and and you'll notice this, I think, or at least train your ears to, to think about this as you hear it. The first is that this child, 
We're asking the question, what child is this? What child is this? And the first answer to that question, this is the child of promise. This is the child that God had promised to send. The second thing that we see in answering the question, what child is this? Because isn't that the question that's pressing in upon even our culture? What child is this? Well, he's the son of God. He is the eternally begotten second person of the Trinity. The third answer to the question, what child is this? Is he is one of us. He is the one who clothed himself in human flesh. The mystery of what theologians call the hypostatic union, if you want a big word, the God demand. And we need to consider these things, all three of them together, in order to have a right pondering in our hearts to the answer to the question, what child is this? So let's hear the word of God together, beginning in verse 1 of Luke's gospel in chapter 2. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you this is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem. And see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things pondering them in her heart, and the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they heard and had seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. May the Lord bless the reading of the Word of God. We see here in verse 16, they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. What child is this? What, who is this? And the first answer that we need to wrestle with 
is that this is the child of promise. This is the child that God had ordained and promised and told his people would come. Notice in verse 4, Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. This is a reference to promise. This is a reference to promise. The city of Bethlehem, the fact that Luke mentions specifically and tells us these events took place in the city of Bethlehem, it's like a flashing neon sign that says, "This we've read this before. This has come up somewhere before. Where did it come up before? It was in Micah, in the prophet Micah, in chapter 5, beginning in verse 2. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, through you, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time that she who is in labor has given birth, then the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel, and he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and this one shall be peace. See, it's significant that these events didn't happen in a random town. They happened in Bethlehem, the city that was prophesied would be the the one from which the promise, the anointed one, would come. God had promised that one would come forth from Bethlehem to rule his people, one who will be their peace. But this was not the first promise of such a one, nor was it the only promise of such a one. Saints, all the way back to the garden in Genesis chapter 3, We read of the fall of man, Adam and Eve's willful rebellion against God. God had given them complete and total freedom in the garden except one prohibition, you shall not eat of the tree of the garden, or the tree that's in the midst of the garden. And you know the story, Satan came and tempted Eve, and they took both of them and ate the fruit that God had said, you shall not eat of it. And as God is cursing the serpent, God says something very significant to the serpent. He said, from the seed of the woman will come the one who will crush your head. There in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, we see the first promise of one who would come, the seed of the woman. But this isn't the last promise. In Genesis chapter 12, God promised to Abraham that from his offspring all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And and you will probably recall that in in Galatians, Paul makes much of the fact that the offspring is singular and not plural. Paul says, now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, plural, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. See, we have the Holy Spirit-inspired interpretation of the promise given to Abraham, that it was not, he was promised true, that his offspring would be of the, like the sand of the sea. But it was not through the plurality, the, the, the multiplicity of his offspring that the world would be blessed, but through one singular offspring. One deliverer and rescuer. Then to Moses, 
The Lord said he would raise up a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. That's in Deuteronomy 18. And do you know the apostles in both Acts 3 and Acts 7 quoted this same thing and applied it to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who was raised up among his brothers. He is the prophet to whom they and we must listen. And then, of course, through David. We see here in Luke chapter 2 the, the mention of David repeatedly. That Joseph was of the offspring of David. The earthly father of Jesus was of the offspring of David. So too was Mary. That's the distinction we get. If we look at the, the genealogy reco- recorded for us by Matthew, demonstrates to us that it is Joseph who is of the line of David. So Jesus would be of the royal line. He was the legitimate heir to David's throne. Luke records for us through Mary's lineage. And so both sides of his family, so to speak. He was of the descendant of David. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, the Lord records for us that the Lord declares to David that the Lord will make you a house when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring, again, singular, after you, who shall come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And time would fail, fails us to go through the, the record after record after record of the, prof, of the prophetical witness declaring that a root of Jesse, a branch of David, would come. And through that one, that God would save his people from their sins. But suffice it just to quote one from Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So saints, when you ponder in your own hearts, when you sit around a dinner table and talk with friends and family members, and you're pondering what is the, the answer to the question, what child is this? He is the child of promise. He is the child that God purposed before the ages were born to come and to rescue his people, to deliver them from sin. This is the child that God purposed from eternity to save us from our sin. This is the one promised from the garden through Abraham, through Moses, through David, through all the prophets, and now has come. Now even the angelic witness appears to shepherds in the field and said, he's come. The time is now. After 400 years of prophetic silence from God, the heavens burst forth with the announcement that God is with us and he's come to offer peace. So what child is this? He's the son of promise. He's the child of promise. But that's not all we find in Luke chapter 2. If you look ahead in verse 11, 
Here is the witness, the angelic witness to the shepherds in the field. Imagine, they're out there just doing their job. It's, it's a dark, dark night, as any night would have been in the ancient world with no, no light pollution that we have here. There wasn't even a faraway parking lot light or something like that. It was dark. And all of a sudden, an angel appears in the heavens before them and speaks to them audibly. And he says, Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This is a declaration of deity. This is a declaration of deity. So what child is this? This child is the Son of God. This is no ordinary birth announcement, is it? An angel makes this birth announcement. In fact, we read that he's accompanied by a whole host of angelic voices in a choir singing out glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. As a pastor, I've had the joy of being part of a number of birth announcements. I've never seen one witnessed with angelic testimony. Not even for your precious little one. There was something special about this birth. And all of the host of angels bore witness to the fact this was not an ordinary birth. Now, if we turn back to Luke chapter 1, Luke has already recorded for us that an angel of the Lord had come to Mary and told her even before she conceived that her child would be divine. Look back at chapter 1, verse 31 or verse 30. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Well, no earthly man can reign over a throne forever. No earthly king would be called the son of the Most High. This child, what child is this? He is the son of the living God. Can you imagine in all these goings on here, we we can sometimes flatten out the, the, the humanity of the people we read about in the scriptures. And sometimes it's helpful for us to think In terms of their humanity, can you imagine the state of mind of Joseph? I mean, what young man who's betrothed to be married isn't beside himself with joy and anticipation? Eager to to begin this stage of his life. I, I love to be with young men on the day of their weddings. I love to be able to just talk with a young man as he's about to see his bride. There's there's an excitement, there's a nervousness, there's a tension, there's an anticipation. Think of all that's going on in the mind of Joseph, and then Mary turns up pregnant. But there's a problem. They haven't come together as husband and wife. And Joseph, the scriptures tell us, because he's a just man, he purposed in his mind to put her away privately. He didn't want to shame her. He loved her. And the angel of the Lord appears to Joseph. Matthew records this for us. In Matthew chapter 1, Beginning in verse 20, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Joseph, the son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, 
for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And Matthew adds, which means God with us. This is God. This is the Son of the living God, the second person of the Trinity, begotten and not made, eternal with the Father. This was no ordinary child. He was, and he is the Son of God. Now let's think this through. What child is this? What child is this? Well, Matthew says, he shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Well, who can save from sin but God? No one can forgive sin except God. What kind of child could save his people in this way? What kind of child could deliver a people from the wrath of God? What kind of child could offer peace between man and the eternally holy, holy, holy God? Only the Son of God could do that. What kind of salvation is necessary to save sinners? It's a salvation that must come from heaven. It can't be human. Only God can forgive sin. Only God can accomplish such a deliverance. Will you turn with me to John's Gospel? Now, John's Gospel is more lofty in its, its theology. And so where we have in Matthew and Luke, we have very... Um, I don't want to use this term in a way that's misunderstood. We have a very common description of what takes place. It's uncommon events, but you have a very common description about a man who's betrothed to a woman and, and his wrestling in his heart about putting her away and, and, and this young woman who finds herself with child, but she hasn't been with a man. And the angel explains to her all that's going to take place. But John begins more in the heavenly realm. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. If you look down at verse 6, I'm sorry, look down at verse 9. This is what we read. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Listen to a sermon recently from Pastor Fred Sanders that was helpful to me thinking through this text in 1 John. You know, it is only God who can give us a right to become children of God. Now think about it in your own home. In your own home. If one of the, you know, your kids are out and maybe in the neighborhood and a kid comes along and, and your, your kids say, hey, you can be part of our family. Well, they're not authorized to do that, are they? They don't have that authority. Who alone has the authority to make them a son in your home? Only the parent has that authority. And here, 
Only God can give us the right to become children of God. Only God, the eternal word made flesh, can offer us such peace with God. Only God can make it so that enemies can become sons and daughters. Now think about this. From the very beginning of television and film, there's one genre in particular, I think, that has stood the test of time and has always been popular, and that's the, the genre of the cop show or the courtroom drama. And they're related together. And shows depicting law enforcement and courts, you know, trends in terms of, of TV genres and film genres come and go, but this one always has remained constant. And, 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 I, and I thought about, why is this? And I suspect it's because deep down in our humanity, we want to see justice. We want to see bad guys apprehended and put away. And we want to see good guys protected. We want to see the weak and the vulnerable and the innocent protected. Now, what does that have to do with Jesus? What does that have to do with Christmas or the incarnation? Well, in all the cop shows I have ever watched, inevitably, what's going to happen is you're going to have a scene with a bad guy who's been arrested, and they sit down with the detective or the prosecutor, and they say, we're going to offer you a deal. But here's the catch. You have to testify against your co-conspirators or give us some information to make it worthwhile to eliminate or reduce your sentence. You know, nobody wants to go to trial. So the prosecution will offer a deal. But every bad guy who's got even an ounce of common sense always asks the same question. Can I get it in writing? Are you authorized to make this deal? Isn't that an important question? Because, see, you you could say, I'm going to make you this deal, but I don't have the authority to carry it out. I I can think of a real-life example. I can think of a real-life example. There's a man who was charged with a very serious crime. He should have been in prison for a life. And the liberal DA in Harris County offered him probation. But you know what happened? A number of faithful believers called the judge, called the court. I went and testified in person to the judge. And you know what? The judge threw out the plea agreement. Because as it turned out, the DA didn't really have that authority after all. Now think about this. The judge threw out a plea deal and sentenced him to a lengthy prison term. Not what he should have been sentenced to, but a lengthy prison term. But brothers and sisters, the gospel is a declaration that all who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. See, this is a judicial transaction. In the courtroom of heaven, God declares that those who are found in Christ are justified. means their sin is canceled. It's pardoned. The certificate of debt is nailed to the cross and done away with. Your sins are as far as the east is from the west, from the top of the mountain to the bottom of the sea. It's gone. But not only that, the perfection and righteousness and innocence of Jesus Christ is credited to the account of those who belong to him. Now, the question there is, who is authorized to make such a deal? Who is authorized to declare this kind of pardon. Only God can do that. No mere man could do that. In fact, not even an angel from heaven would be authorized 
to make that announcement, to make that declaration. But that is precisely what Jesus comes and declares. And we saw this in Mark's gospel as he begins his public ministry. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Here is the gospel offer. If you will believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. You will be pardoned. Your your record will be expunged. There will be no record of your debt. But not only that, the full measure of Christ's righteousness will be accredited to your account. That's a judicial transaction. And only the Son of God is authorized to make such a deal. If you are in Christ, brothers and sisters, There's no higher authority that's going to come along and undo the salvation you have received. This is why Paul in Romans 8 says, who can make a charge against the elect? Come on, who? If you've been forgiven in Christ, there is no higher authority. There is no one who can come and throw out the deal. You've been declared righteous in his son. And only the son of God can make that proclamation. The eternal Son, the eternal Word of God. So if you're in Christ this morning, it is only possible for your sins to be forgiven because your Savior, Jesus Christ, was and is God. He is truly God, fully God. But brothers, if you are not yet in Christ, on the authority of God's holy Word, I declare to you, that he's offering today peace. He's offering to you today a deal. And here's the terms. You must believe that Christ is the Son of God, that he came according to the promise of the Scriptures, that he took on your flesh, lived among you, that he bore the just penalty for your sin, And God, according to his determinate counsel and predetermined will, caused him to be crucified in your stead. But God didn't leave him dead. He raised him from the the grave, accepting, proving that that sacrifice was acceptable and has exalted him to his own right hand and given him a name above every name, the name of the Lord. He is God. So the scriptures, the scriptures declare to you by way of promise that if you will call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. You will be pardoned. Your sins will be forgiven. Even your conscience will be cleansed from dead work. The blood of bulls and goats could not accomplish that, but the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ can and does. Believe that Jesus came into the world to save sinners and believe this, that you are such a sinner. That you, not just generally that somebody out there needs a Savior, but that you do. And that He died for you to cleanse your sin. That you were helpless and hopeless, unable to rescue yourself from the certain wrath of God which is to come. Believe that in the Lord Jesus Christ, your sins are pardoned. All of them. Yes, even that one that just came to your mind. cleansed, pardoned. Believe that by his grace 
He will produce in you the fruit of repentance, that you will turn away from your sin and you will follow him only. Listen to how our confession describes the divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because again, this is the central issue. No one else would be authorized to make such a deal with you. No one would be authorized to make such a gospel proclamation to you that your sins can be forgiven permanently, irrevocably. In our Confession of Faith, this is in chapter 8, entitled Christ the Mediator. I'm not going to read the whole whole paragraph, but in paragraph 2, it begins this way. The Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, being very and eternal God, the brightness of the Father's glory, of one substance and equal with him, who made the world, who upholdeth and governeth all things he hath made. As we think about and ponder in our own hearts the, what child is this? Make sure we're pondering this correctly. This is the son of the living God. No less than, truly, God. He is the child of promise. He is the eternally begotten Son of God. He is eternal. He is of the same essence with the Father in glory and majesty and dominion. Do you know that Jesus Christ never at any moment ceased to be God? As we contemplate him, as we can pick up our study here in two weeks on the Gospel of Mark, and we walk through the pages of Scripture, we see Jesus, and we will see his humanity. But he never ceased to be God. He never divested himself of even one attribute of the divinity. Not once, not even for a moment. If he did, he couldn't be God. And as we ponder him in our hearts, we, we don't want to think wrongly that somehow he set aside his divinity while he was on the earth, that somehow he existed from eternity as the Son of God. He changed into flesh, and and for 33 years approximately, he lived as a human, and then he became divine again. Let's don't think that way. Now, there's a mystery here. There's an incomprehensible aspect of the union of his divine and human persons, or divine and human natures, not persons. His union of his divine and human natures in one person. But here's the other crucial question or crucial answer to the first question. What child is this? He's the child of promise. What child is this? He's the son of God. The other question we must, or must the other answer we must give though. What child is this? He's also a human child. He's a human child. He's one of us. We have the account in Luke 2. There in verse 6, and while they were in, while they were there in, in Bethlehem, the time came for her to give birth. And she, this is Mary, gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. In many respects, his birth was extraordinary. But in many other respects, his birth was ordinary. He came into the world the same way we do. Not by the same lineage. He was the product of a union between a human woman and the Holy Spirit. 
but he matured in her womb and entered the world in in precisely the same way that babies have been born for 6,000 plus years. She wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger. Now think about this. God could have sent Jesus in some other way, couldn't he? I mean, when, when when he created the first Adam, Adam didn't come as an infant, did he? Adam was a grown man. He was mature. He was complete. God could have done the same with the second Adam, but he didn't. And again, this was an insight that I thought was helpful from from Pastor Fred Sanders. Jesus was born into a family. And and in in God's wisdom, God, from the very beginning, made the family the most fundamental, basic building block of humanity. All of us, whether we like it or not, we're born into a family. We were born by ordinary generation. If Jesus had come to earth in some other way, wouldn't we question his credentials, his credibility as truly human? Because we would look at him, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, he's human in terms of we could check his blood, we could do the DNA test, and we could see he, 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 he checks all the, the metrics, but... It's not really like me in the sense of he didn't grow up in the same way I did. He didn't go through the normal processes of maturing, of growing, and developing. If he had merely descended from heaven as a fully grown Savior, he would not understand his humanity in the same way. And we would not respond to his humanity in the same way, but we identify with him and him with us in the fullness of his humanity. If perhaps you left a finger in John 1, you could turn back there or you could just listen. I'm only going to read one verse. In verse 14, we find this statement John makes, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He's speaking here of the eternal word of God. The, the bodiless, eternal spirit of the second person of the Trinity. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now again, as we ponder in our hearts, what child is this? We need to think about what does it mean that he became flesh? That the word became flesh. Because in our ordinary use of that word, what do we mean? If something becomes something, we mean that it ceases to be what it once was and and changes into something else. And of course, the classic illustration of this is we have this ugly, creepy caterpillar that spins its cocoon, and after so many weeks, that caterpillar does not exist anymore because it became what? Children, what is the, what is the, cut, the butterfly? Oh, see, I just spoiled it. Spoiled it. <laughs> oh, I hate when I give the punchline. The caterpillar becomes a butterfly, doesn't it? It ceases to be what it once was. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul is speaking autobiographically, and he says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, and I reasoned like a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. What is Paul saying? 
I was once a child, but I'm not a child anymore. In order to become a man, some of you need to hear this, in order to become a man, you can't be a child anymore. Our culture needs to understand this, doesn't it? You, you can't be a man-child. I mean, you can try. There's plenty of making a valiant effort, but you can't be both a child and a man. You cease to be one in order to become the other. But see, Jesus did not become, in that same sense, one thing instead of the other. And this is why the language is important. As you ponder in your hearts, practice pondering with precise words. So Jesus didn't change into, into human flesh. He didn't turn into human flesh. The, the more precise theological words, and they're not big words, just he took on or he assumed to himself human flesh. The eternal word of God took to himself our human flesh. He assumed to himself our human nature, along with all of its weaknesses and flaws, except without sin. And he took to himself our, our full humanity, both body and soul. So it is not the case, and again, as we ponder in our hearts, let us not think this way. This is the wrong way to think. That Jesus took on human flesh, but he had a divine soul. That would not give justice to what the scriptures teach to us. He took on our full humanity because that which was not assumed couldn't be redeemed. He took on not only our human flesh, but our human soul with all of the faculties of a human mind and all the limitations thereof. He took on our full humanity. I mentioned earlier, the, the, if you want the fancy word, it's, an, it's the hypostatic union. And some object to such theological words because they're complicated, but one of my friends says, it's easier to say and even spell the word hypostatic union than it is to explain it. So the word in this case is actually easier than the concept because we are dealing with the mystery of the person of the mediator. That Christ Jesus, beginning at the moment, that the Holy Spirit overcame Mary and conceived in her womb a baby, a baby which was the God-man, truly God and truly man. And not once did Jesus ever cease to be God, not once did he ever, until this very moment, cease to be man. And we want to be careful, we want to be faithful to the Scriptures and how we think about our Savior as both God and man. Mary pondered in her heart, and, and, and we ought to do likewise, and we ought to do likewise accurately. And this is where the language of our Reformed confessions is, is helpful to us. As we ponder in our hearts, we can even rehearse the words that are helpful so that we're thinking carefully and rightly, and that way we're, we're speaking carefully and rightly to those that we love who we want to know our Savior as we do. And back to paragraph 2 in our Confession of Faith in chapter 8 of the Mediator. I read to you the first phrase. Now I'm going to skip ahead and read the last phrase of that paragraph. This is describing Christ the Mediator. Two whole, perfect, and distinct natures. What are those two whole, perfect, and distinct natures? Divinity and humanity. God and man. Joined together in one person. So the Mediator is one person 
two natures. Does that mean Jesus had two wills? Yes. He had a human will and a divine will. This is why Jesus could say to his Father in prayer, not my will, but yours be done. The will of God was never divided. According to his divinity, Jesus' will was always the same as the Father, as the Spirit. But according to his humanity, he had a human will. In fact, this is one of those things that blows our mind. The Apostle Paul testifies that the Son, according to his humanity, learned obedience as a son. He learned obedience without sin, perfectly. Now, I'm going to continue the, the, the phrase here in our confession of faith. Two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person. Now, here's three important words that it would not hurt you to memorize, would not hurt you to know these words, without conversion, composition, or confusion. So how do we think about the human nature and the divine nature in one person? We must think in three C's, easy enough to remember, without conversion, composition, or confusion. Which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man? So these three C's, conversion, composition, or confusion. What do these mean? Well, conversion, that's the butterfly. The caterpillar converted to a butterfly, was changed, which means the old thing didn't exist anymore. Well, we have to cross that out and say, that, that's not our mediator. That is not our God-man. So if you're thinking in your mind that he converted from divinity to humanity and then back to divinity, then you're not pondering in your heart correctly. And you want to think carefully and correctly about your mediator. But the other one is composition. See, we as human creatures, we are, we are composed of many parts, right? You, you all know the song, the, the leg bones connected to the knee bone and so forth. We, we are composed of different parts. The God-man was not a mixture of humanity and divinity. We, he didn't take humanity and mix it in with his divinity. What would happen if that were the case? The, the humanity would be swallowed up in the infinite vastness of his divinity. And, and we can think of all kinds of, of illustrations. I, I chuckle to myself. I mentioned Fred Sanders' sermon. He used Plato in the pulpit. He took blue Plato and yellow Plato, and he blended them together, and they made what? Green Plato. And he used that to illustrate what we, how we should not think. God is not composed, or our, our God-man is not composed. His humanity, his divinity didn't blend together and create some new thing. Because whatever that new thing is would not be identical to us and therefore could not be our Savior. We also, he's not converted from one, from divinity to humanity and back. He's not composed of some humanity and some divinity blended together, nor is there a confusion that which is proper to his human nature cannot be proper to his divine nature. In other words, his human nature was limited. We saw this just a couple of weeks ago in that dramatic scene of Jesus in the boat with his disciples. What was he doing in the boat? He was asleep. According to his humanity, he was tired. He'd been teaching and preaching all day. He was exhausted. And he was asleep in the boat. 
But then his disciples woke him. Master, do you not care that we're perishing? And what do we observe next? His divinity. When he looked at the raging wind and waves and said, hush. His human nature could not have done that. His human nature, according to his humanity, he doesn't cause the wind and the waves to be still, but his divine nature has that authority because he's the one who made them. According to Jesus' human nature, he was one of us. And because he was, took on our human nature, the apostle to the Hebrews the, logically and theologically works this out. He says, this is why he could be the faithful high priest for us. Listen to Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 14. Since then, we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. You see what he's doing? He's working out the implications of the fact that we have a mediator who is both God and man, truly God and truly man. Not once did he cease being divine. Not once did he cease having the authority to forgive your sin. Not once did he cease being a human who could identify with your weaknesses. The weakness of your flesh. The weakness of your mind. The weakness of your body. The weakness of your human emotions. Now, I want to add as an aside on this text, this, this, this text in Hebrews 4 is being used increasingly not to exalt the God-man, but to justify sin. And here's how. It's reasoned wrongly, but it's reasoned, it's reasoned this way. He has in every respect been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And so the reason goes like this. See, Jesus had sinful, tempting thoughts just like you do. But as long as he didn't act on those sinful, tempting thoughts, it wasn't actually sin. Do you hear where the problem is yet? Jesus was tempted. He was tempted multiple times, most dramatically when he was led into the wilderness by the Spirit, deprived of food and water for 40 days, physically weak, physically exhausted, emotionally alone, and he was tempted by the devil. All of those temptations came from outside of him, nothing from inside of him. Can you say that? When you are confronted with temptation, sure, that temptation may come from outside of you, but let's be honest, there's something in you that wants to match that temptation. We have covetous hearts. Your Savior did not. So, for example... Those who are promoting some, try to, try to find this, this middle way with respect to homosexuality, as one example. And they will say, your same-sex attraction itself isn't sin as long as you don't act upon it. And they will quote this verse. And they will say, see, Jesus was tempted just as we are in every way. He experienced our humanity to such an extent that he was tempted just exactly like you are. Well, let's don't be wooden in our interpretation of the Scriptures. And let's don't interpret one passage without taking into account all that the Scriptures testify. 
Jesus was not, he did not have the fallen nature that you have, that I have. By, by our conception, we inherit from our father Adam disordered affections, don't we? Not only sexual, but we have by, by nature a larcenous heart. How do we know that? Watch, a, watch two children play together. They will seek to steal from one another at the drop of a hat. You don't have to teach them that, do they? Do you? They will naturally take what does not belong to theirs. They will see with their eyes and say, I want that, and they will take it. And if given the opportunity, they would even murder to get it. Wouldn't they? Our Lord Jesus did not have that fallen nature. So yes, he was tempted in every way, in all the categories in which we are tempted. He was hungry. He was thirsty. He experienced grief and loss and betrayal. He was tempted in all the categories of the ways that we are tempted. But his temptation was not precisely and exactly like yours or mine. You see? What child is this? This is the child of promise. What child is this? This is the son of God. What child is this? He is one of us. He took on our human nature. One of the old Puritans, a man by the name of Stephen Charnock, he wrote a, a two-volume work called The Existence and Attributes of God. I commend it to you. Listen to what he says about this God-man. He, this is being Jesus, is a true mediator between mortal sinners and the immortal righteous one. He was near to us by the infirmities of our nature and near to God by the perfections of the divine, as near to God in his nature as to us in ours, as near to us in our nature as he is to God in the divine. There is nothing that belongs to the deity, but he possesses. Nothing that belongs to the human nature, but he is clothed with. He had both the nature that had offended and that nature that was offended. A nature to please God and a nature to pleasure us. A nature whereby he experimentally knew the excellency of God which was injured and understood the glory due to him and consequently the greatness of the offense which was to be measured by the dignity of his person and a nature whereby he might be sensible of the miseries contracted by and endure the calamities due to the offender, that he might both have compassion on him and make due satisfaction for him. Brothers and sisters, we need, we need a mediator who is God and a man, truly God, truly man. Without conversion, composition, or confusion. So as you ponder in your hearts, what child is this? Do not forget, he didn't just show up randomly. He was the son of promise. He was the child of promise. He was the one that God had foretold would save his people from their sins. What child is this? He is the son of God, truly God, eternally begotten of the Father, like unto God in every respect, all of his essence, all of his glory, all of his majesty, all of his attributes. 
And what child is this? He's one of us. He took on to himself our human flesh so that he could be our faithful high priest, sympathetic with us. And he remains to this very moment, to this very moment, he remains the God-man. Exalted to the right hand of God. Not only his divinity, his divinity was already exalted. His divinity did not need to be exalted again. What was exalted? His humanity. And we, saints, we are promised to receive a resurrection like his. Will you believe that? Will you trust this God-man? Will you trust this child who became a man, who became your Savior? Let's pray. Our Father, you are good and gracious and kind to us, and we give you thanks that in your perfect eternal wisdom that you sent forth your Son. Our Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came, that you came into this world, the one who made the world entered into his own creation took to yourself our nature so that you could save us. Holy Spirit, we praise you that it's by your power that we have new life. And we pray, triune God, that you would send the Holy Spirit this morning, this afternoon, to those who are here, who still are in great need of a mediator between God and man. Those who need their sins forgiven, those who need to be reconciled to a thrice holy God, those who need to escape the wrath that is to come. Holy Spirit, will you cause such a one, such a boy, a girl, a man, a woman to be born again today? to believe this gospel of your Son, to be reconciled to you, to be assured of pardon, of forgiveness, of cleansing, of new life and righteousness in Christ. We ask this in his name and for the glory of our triune God. Amen.